Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Well, why don't you open up your Bibles tonight to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, Pastor Carl, he just he was sick earlier this week, and I was preaching at our Marion Church uh, this morning. I had the privilege of going down to Marion and visiting the church that we planted at Marion over a year ago. It was awesome to see what God's doing down there. Just God is just working in that church. He's uh, uh, about a year ago. If you weren't with us, um, we sent out people from this church and West because our heartbeat is to be a church that brings glory to God and joy to our city by planting churches that make disciples. And so uh, three years ago, we sent out some of our best and planted City Reach uh, West. And then last year, we sent out um, some more people and we planted City Reach Marion in the southern part of our city. And I was visiting uh, Marion uh, this morning and it was just awesome. They've got a a Chinese congregation and I went and greeted um, the Chinese congregation and spoke to the Chinese congregation and then And it was great to see the growth and what God's doing uh, through his gospel there in Marion. But I was preaching this morning, and Pastor Carl was sick this week, so he said, Timon, can you preach the same message at night? So you are getting the message I preached this morning, but I prayed about it, and it's not just going to be just a reheated message. I think God's really going to speak to us tonight. Uh, Last Sunday, Pastor Jeff, myself, Chris Goodway, and Charlie from City Rich Marion, we came back from a trip to Nepal. We went to Nepal um, to, be, to work with Barnabas School of Leadership. Barnabas School of Leadership is a ministry that seeks to resource the under-resourced church. In the places in the world where Christianity is growing the most, pastors and leaders are the most under-resourced. And so Barnabas School of Leadership, uh, we partner with them and we go every year to Nepal We take 30 pastors aside and we train them in servant leadership. And uh, it was just a powerful time. But as you can imagine, as we come to give and to serve, we also are so blessed. Because many of these pastors, they're first generation Christians. It's It's like visiting New Testament Christianity. They have stories of the way, miraculous stories of the way that God has worked. They suffer persecution. But they're out there preaching the gospel and planting churches, and you get just infected by their faith. But one of the things that always touches me when I go to Nepal is that these people know how to pray. Now, Pastor Jeff, on the very first Saturday that we were there, because their worship day is Saturday, we went out and preached in a whole heap of churches, and I forgot to tell Jeff how they actually pray. You see, they have a bit of a different um, prayer style to us. Instead of when we pray, we typically take one time, you know, one person at a time. But when they pray, they all pray at the same time. They all pray together. I forgot to tell Jeff. So when he went into this church and the pastor said, let's pray, and everyone started praying together, he thought, Timon, you've got me into some charismatic, hyper-charismatic church. What have you got me into here? But it's not that. It's just that that's their practice. That's the way that they pray. I have a little bit of a clip here just to give you a bit of an enculturation of what it's like. So this is what it's like in Nepal. So let's just play the clip. (laughs) 
there's, there you have it. <laughs> there they are, calling out to God, calling out to God, calling out to the Lord. And as I said, every time I go, I am just faced and challenged. How's my prayer life? How do I go with calling out to the Lord? I wonder if you're the same. I wonder if you are challenged in your prayer life. Well, what I want to do tonight is I want to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 because Paul is a good mentor. And in this passage, he teaches us what we are to pray for and why we are to pray. But in order to understand this passage, let me just give you a bit of the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, a church that he had planted. And as you can see, it's just three chapters long. In the first chapter, uh, Paul actually encourages the Thessalonians to remain faithful under persecution. He reminds them in verse 4 that of the persecutions and sufferings that they are enduring. And he says that this is evident that they are members of the kingdom of God. And he reminds them that at the return of Christ, they will be vindicated and that they will marvel at his appearing. And then at the end of the first chapter, Paul prays for them. He finishes off praying for them in verses 11 and 12 that God may make them worthy of their calling to suffer and that God may strengthen their resolve so that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified through them in the midst of their persecution and sufferings. Well, then in chapter 2, chapter 2, Paul moves to correction and teaching over the day of the Lord. It seems because of this intense persecution that the church was going through, there had been this report that had been spread that the return of Christ had happened, and they were now in that period in Revelation which speaks about the intense day of the Lord when the wrath of God is pulled out on the earth. But Paul reminds them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that this day will not come until the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. And then what does he do after he corrects them and teaches them? Well, once again, Paul gets down on his knees and he prays for them. He prays for them in verses 16 and 17 that God would comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work. So do you see the context? Paul encourages them, then he prays. He teaches them, and then he prays. And then we come into chapter 3, and look down in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us. I've been praying for you. Finally, I want you to pray for me. Now, one of the things that if you're a leader, one of the most important things that you need to model for people is dependence on God. You know, often there is a temptation if you're a leader just to model for people a posture of strength. But actually, as a leader, you need to do the opposite. You need to model a posture of weakness and dependence. About a year ago, I was meeting up with a young guy for discipleship, and I was helping him out in his life, and he was sharing with me some of his problems and sins, and then we prayed together. And at this point, I had a choice. I could either move on in the conversation, or what I could do is take off my mask and actually share with him my weaknesses and my sins and get him to pray for me. 
And I chose to do the latter. And it floored him. It floored him. Pastor Timon has weaknesses and sins, just like him. But it actually modeled the correct thing, that we are all equally needy. We need his righteousness. We need his strength. We need his power. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, not only am I praying for you, but I want you to pray for me. Now, what does Paul get them to pray for? Now, Paul could have easily got the Thessalonians to pray for him about his physical situation. If you read 2 Corinthians, he had this thorn in the flesh, which may have been an eye condition. So he could have said, can you pray for me? Pray for my eyes. <laughs> he could have easily said to the Thessalonians, I want you to pray for my financial needs that God might provide for me. But he doesn't. Not that those are bad things to pray for. They're good things to pray for. Look down in verse 1. What does Paul get the Thessalonians to pray for? He says, finally, brothers, pray for us. And he's speaking here of the missionary team of Silvanus and Paul and Timothy, who he introduces in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians. He says, pray for us, for our missionary team, that the word of the Lord, the gospel, may speed ahead. The word speed in Greek is used all the way throughout Paul's writings. He uses this word often, but often it's translated run. And he's invoking this imagery from the Olympic Games where they would have these running races. And he's saying, what I want you guys to pray for is I want you to pray that the gospel would run ahead of us, that as we go out as a missionary team, that the word would spread, that the message would spread, that there would be rapid expansion of the message. Pray that the word would speed ahead. And notice he says, and be honored. The idea behind this is that not only would the message spread and get out there, but that people would receive the message and believe the message and honor Jesus as Lord and Savior. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Now, how did it happen among the Thessalonians? Well, we read about how the gospel came to Thessalonica in Acts 17. It's a really, really amazing story. Paul goes into the city having never been there before. Can you imagine? Imagine going to somewhere you've never been before. Paul goes there. He walks into the uh, synagogue of the Jews like he always does. He talks about how Jesus is the Messiah, how he died, and how he rose again. And then it simply says that he persuaded many of them. Many of the devout Jews were persuaded. And I love this phrase in, uh, it says in Acts. And it says, and not a few leading women. Why put it in the negative? I think that means many leading women were convinced by it. And so it seems that when Paul came to Thessalonica, God attended the preaching of the gospel. And many from, the, from, from Thessalonica came to Christ. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, For we know that God has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. That's how I want the gospel to come. In power, not in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. 
So he says in verse 9, they turned from idols and they turned to serve the living God. What should we pray for? We should pray for gospel advancement, that the gospel would spread, that it would come with power and with conviction and great authority so that people will turn from their idols and they will turn and they will serve the living God. On Friday in Nepal, when we first arrived, Pastor Chandran, who you met earlier this year, he took us out for a tour of the old city of Bhaktapur and we saw all the idols that they have. Hinduism has over three million idols, three million different gods. But I wondered, what are the idols in Adelaide? What are the idols that people serve here? Do we know what they are? And are we praying for the rapid expansion of the gospel that it might come with power and authority, that people might turn from idols and they might serve, they might worship the living God? You see, Paul was a pretty good preacher, but he knew that the key, the key to effective gospel ministry is prayer, prayer for the advance of the gospel, prayer that the word would come with power. Now, why do we find that hard to believe? Why do we find that hard to believe? Well, part of the reason that we find this hard to believe, that the gospel could rapidly expand and that people could come and serve the living God is because we live at a time where people are teaching the secular myth. Um, when I was away, I read this book by Mark Sayers called The Reappearing Church. And in it, he talks about the secular myth that's out there. He talks about it this way. He says, the secular myth centers on the idea that at some undetermined high point of church influence, the West, that's where we're living, was thoroughly Christian. It imagined that at this high point, churches were filled with devoted believers and society was filled with Christian values and institutions. This period of strength is usually envisaged as occurring to the Middle Ages, a pinnacle from which the Christian faith has since experienced a decline. So he has this little chart in his book. So there was some time, you see, in the 1400s, in the Middle Ages, where Christianity was right at the top, and then it's been slowly declining. And as progressive values increase, what we will see is we'll actually, the secular myth says, we'll actually see the complete obliteration of Christianity in society. Now, Mark Sayers says that this is actually a secular myth because when you look at church history, it didn't happen like this. There, are, there were times, yes, of great renewal and revival where the church was thriving and going forward, but there were also, in the last 400 years, times of great death and decline where the waters had receded. Mark Sayers, he talks about this predictable pattern that happens in churches and in society, he says, first, what you have is you have hot orthodoxy. First, what you'll have is the renewing presence of God, and people are hot, they're passionate for God, and orthodoxy means they have the right belief. But then if that doesn't continue, it'll then cool down into cold orthodoxy. They'll still have the right thinking, but their hearts will no longer be on fire for God. I think we see this in the book 
Even in the New Testament with the church at Ephesus, they had lost their first love. They were no longer, they had the right thinking, the right doctrine, the right action, but they were no longer on fire for God. And if this continues, then the next generation just becomes this. They become cultural Christians. People who are Christian in name only and people who do a number of practices. But there's no presence of God. There's no power in their faith. And it isn't long before this leads to decline and death. In the church in which I grew up in, the Brethren Churches, sometime in the past there must have been hot orthodoxy because there are brethren churches everywhere around Australia. There must have been some time where there was power and there was preaching of God's word, but then eventually it led to cold orthodoxy as legalism crept in, led to cultural Christianity, just the forms with no real faith, with no real presence. And then it lets, it's now in a place of death and decline. But Mark says, says we aren't to worry about this because just as when you go to a beach and you see the waters recede and you see all of, you know, when you see the tide go out, you see a whole heap of barrenness, you know that way out deep in the water there is something happening and the tide is going to come back in. And we may see the tide come back in even in Western society and he says there is this predictable pattern that God brings people through. Let me show you this graph. There is decline, but then there is a group of people who experience holy discontent. People who say, when they read the New Testament, I'm not satisfied with the state of things are. I'm not satisfied with the way things are. I'm not satisfied. And, and then they go into a, a phase of preparation where they confess their sins and they return to vital communion with Christ. And then they start contending in prayer, seeking God, seeking for his glory to be seen in the church. And then they start to develop holy patterns. You know, we are a result of our patterns. Do you realize this thing in your pocket is shaping you in ways you may not even realize? It was interesting when I was in Nepal, um, we didn't have really good internet. And so I'd go back to my room, and whereas at nighttime I would typically, you know, check my email, check Facebook, you know, play around on, on YouTube, looking up clips, I couldn't do this. Was, and so it's like, what do you do at nighttime if you don't have internet? You pray. You read the Bible. You spend time with other Christians. It's one of the best weeks of my life. So they develop holy patterns and then they become a remnant, a small remnant through which God can bring his presence. In every church that I've been in that has experienced renewal, it hasn't happened because of the whole, it's happened because there's been a small group of people who've become discontent with the way things are, they've returned to God, they've started contending in prayer and then God through them has brought his renewing presence to the whole. What should we pray for? Let's be praying for the advance of the gospel. Let's be a church that prays. Let's be, let's be an evening congregation that prays for the advance of the gospel, the rapid expansion of the gospel.
that the word might go forth with power and be honored. Let's pray for that. When I was speaking to my Nepalese brothers, the last lesson that we taught was on this. We were teaching them and we were saying, you know, it's the Holy Spirit who moves the sails of the church so that the church moves forward in the power of God. And we said that prayer is one of the means by which we come back into relationship with God where we surrender to God so that the Holy Spirit can fill us so that he can use us. And then as I looked out at my Nepalese brothers, I had to say, guys, <laughs> I realize that you guys are actually way better at contending prayer than we are. And I said, can you please do something for me? Can you pray for City Reach? Can you pray for Adelaide? Can you intercede and ask that God might come, that God might move in power, that the word might expand rapidly? And the clip that you saw at the beginning was them passionately calling out for you, for us, that the gospel might advance, that the word of God might be honored in our city. See, what do we pray for? Let's pray for rapid gospel advancement. Let me ask you a challenging question. Here's the challenging question, guys. If God was to answer your prayer tonight for the people you prayed for this week, how many people would be sitting in church next to you tonight? That's a pretty challenging question. If God was to answer your prayer for how you prayed for people this week to come to know Christ, how many people would be sitting in these seats? What do we pray for? We pray for gospel advancement. Number two, number two, why, why do we pray? Paul moves on to his motivations for prayer, motivations for praying. Now the first motivation is found at the end of verse two. Paul says, let's pray for gospel advancement, he says in verse two, for not all have faith. The reason that Paul prays for the advance of the gospel is that his eyes are on eternity. He knows that the greatest need of human beings is not more education, it's not more money, it's not even to alleviate people's present suffering. The greatest need of human beings is salvation. The Bible says that we are storing up wrath and there will come a day of judgment that every person will face. And so one of the motivations of the, to pray, why should we pray, is because people are going to hell. J.D. Greer has a book called Above All. And in this book, he writes about a friend of his named Rhonda. He says that Rhonda was in her mid-20s and had grown up in New England. And she was far from the Bible Belt. He said, it's, hard to, it's rare today to find an American who's never heard anything about Christianity, but he says, that was my friend Rhonda. And so JD says that he started with the basics with Rhonda. Who is God? Why Jesus came? And how we can receive him as Lord and Savior? And she asked lots of questions, JD said. But he said, I wasn't prepared for her last question. She asked him, she said, do you actually believe this? 
And he said, yes, of course I do. And she said, well, the reason that I say that is because you don't act like you believe this. I mean, if I believed what you're saying, that everyone in my life who doesn't know Jesus is separated from God's love and headed to hell, then I'm not sure how I would make it through the day. I would be constantly on my knees pleading for people to listen. She said, you don't seem bothered by all this. You lay out the details pretty well, but it just seems philosophical. Not a matter of life and death. J.D. writes that he felt like he'd been punched in the guts. You see, if we really believe what the Bible says is true, that there is a coming day of judgment, then we should be on our knees. We should be coming before God and praying for everyone we know that God would have mercy on them and draw them to the Son so that they might be saved. If we believe it. If we believe that there is eternal punishment after this life. But not only does Paul say that, he also goes on in verse 3. He says, not all have faith, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. The second motivation to pray for the advancement of the gospel is because God is faithful to answer prayer. God answers prayer, amen? When we pray, God moves, amen? You know, I, uh, I, already in this letter, we've seen twice that Paul prays for the Thessalonians, once at the end of chapter 1 and once at the end of chapter 2, and Paul is confident that God will answer those prayers. He's confident that in the midst of persecutions that they are facing, the Lord will establish them and guard them. He says that in verse 3. And he's, and he's confident in the midst of assault from false teaching that they will do and keep on doing the things that Paul is commanding them. And where is Paul's confidence come from? Paul's confidence comes from the fact that the Lord is faithful. He has seen God work. He knows that God answers prayer. You see, I think that at the heart of our problem with prayer is not a technique problem. It's not like we need another prayer journal or another prayer app to help us, although those things are helpful. The heart, maybe, of our problem with prayer is maybe we don't believe it'll do any good. Speaking to a young man this morning, after the service, when I preached, he came up to me and he said, Timon, I, can, I get it. I, I get it that you know, when I pray, God will change me as I pray. And he will draw me into intimate relationship. But does God really answer prayer? Does God really answer prayer? Paul E. Miller, in his book on prayer, says that Western culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. And the reason being is that we have so much abundance and we're so busy that when it comes to taking time to speak to God, it seems like a waste of time. I know what this is like as a pastor. Like I come in and I, and I set out my day and I'm going to pray. I, I say, okay, I'm going to spend some time in prayer. But then I get in front of the email in front of me and like, I just like, I need, to, I need to answer those things. I need to get things done. As if prayer is not 
the way. As, as, as if prayer is not significant and prayer is not, and not a way to get things done. And I looked at this young man this, this morning and I said, you know, see the problem is, I said to him, is I said, the reason that you see no need for prayer is because you have no need in your life. If you truly had need, then you would actually pray. See, when you go to our brothers in Nepal and you talk to them, they will tell you all about the needs in their church. They'll tell you all about their needs in their family. And they have no other place to go than to God in prayer. No other place. And there's this beautiful relationship, therefore, between their need and their vibrant prayer life. And, you know, for us, I think when we have a need, we just think that money will solve it. Or that better thinking will solve it. Or more activity will solve that need. And praise God that we have all those things. I'm not saying that those things are bad. Praise God we have those things. But just come with me for a second. When I was in Nepal, the Lord sort of said to me, maybe we are a lot like the church at Laodicea. We think that we are rich and we don't even realize how poor we are before God. Jesus said, you can be rich in this world but not rich with God. Have intimacy with God. See the power of God at work. We might have resources and praise God for our resources but are we seeing what God can only do Change hearts and lives. Fill this church with people. Like true conversion. Not, not Christians who come from other places, but, but true conversions of people who are coming to faith and experiencing the gospel for the first time. This, this is something we can't do. This is something we need God for. And when you think about someone who probably, probably didn't need anything, I think of Jesus. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He could say to the wind and waves, be still. He could say to Lazarus, come forth. But still, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed and he sought the Father in prayer. And if Jesus needed prayer, then you and I need prayer as well. Now, if you're too tired to pray or too busy to pray, it's just because you've become very self-sufficient. And you know what? In my experience, God has a way of actually stripping that self-sufficiency away from you so that you will become a person who really can sing the song, Lord, I need you. Yes, I need you. Every hour, I need you. He'll do that because he loves you. <laughs> but the final, final motivation of why we should pray because of the reality of judgment, because of the faithfulness of God, and that is because of the love of God. After Paul sort of asks the Thessalonians to pray for him in verse 5, he directs a petition back to the Lord. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The love of Christ should compel us to pray 
when we see, now this is a really interesting way of phrasing it, this last in verse 5, where he says, the steadfastness of Christ. I, I haven't seen anywhere else in the New Testament Paul use that expression. Reflect on the steadfastness of Christ. What is that? The perseverance of Jesus. I think part of what motivates us to pray is as we see Jesus, our Lord, all the way throughout his life praying, it should motivate us to pray. As we see him in the garden sweating drops of blood, and what's he doing? Praying. As we see him go to the cross, and on the cross, he has these seven cries that he makes on the cross, and what are they? They're prayers, prayers to God. Right to the end of Jesus' life, Jesus is persevering in prayer till he says, it is finished. You see, part of the motivation to pray, my brothers and sisters, is that in the end, Jesus wins. Reflect on the love of God and the perseverance of Jesus, that he went right to the end of the cross and it said, it is finished, and the work was done, and guess what? In the end, Jesus wins. In the end of the story, if you haven't read it, I'm ruining it for you. At the end of the story, in the book of Revelation, it says, there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, around the throne of God, worshiping the Lamb. That should motivate you to pray. In the end, Jesus wins. We are on the winning side. So regardless of what secular people say or the secular myth, Jesus wins in the end. And this should be a great motivation to pray. A great motivation to pray. So we've looked tonight at what we are to pray for, gospel advancement, and we've looked at why we are to pray. Can I just finish off with some applications for us all to apply so we're not just hearers of the word, we are doers of the word. Here's application number one. Enlist a team of people to pray for you. If you're in leadership, find at least three people. If you're a youth leader, a worship leader, a small group leader, find people to pray for you. Paul said pray for us. He was enlisting people to pray for him. Enlist people to pray for you. Application number two, join the remnant. Join the remnant. Let's have a remnant of people in this church who are contending for God to come and renew this church and renew our city. Where are you on this chart? Where are you right at this moment? Are you in a, in a pattern of decline in your spiritual life? Become discontent. Come back to the Lord in confession and repentance. Start to produce holy habits in your life and become part of the remnant who are seeking God in this church for his presence to come. And here's the final application I want you to all do. Get out your phone and write down three names right now of people that you're going to pray for this week who need Christ. Let's do it. Come on. So we'll get out our phones or a piece of paper if you don't have a phone. Get out your phone, open up to the notes section, and ask the Spirit right now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would lead us to three names of people who are far from you, whom we know, maybe family members, people at university, people in our network who need Jesus, Lord. Lord, prompt us this week to pray for the advance of the gospel in their lives, that you might open a door of witness for us to witness to them. Lord, that you might 
that they might honor the word of God, that it might come in some way to them with power and authority and full conviction, and they might turn and serve the living God. Oh, Lord, we pray, we pray right now. Lord, fill our minds with those people.